Stories. 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 By Soho House. It's much easier to find that happiness and pursue that thing that's beyond yourself when you're doing it with other people. When we have a group thing that we're all aiming for, you know. Welcome to Soho House Stories with me, George Lamb. In this series of shows, I'm going to talk to inspirational people from all walks of life as they share with me what drives them and how they got to where they are now. Our guest this time is Bruce Parry. My name's Bruce Parry. I'm a documentary filmmaker and really happy to be here. Bruce was a presenter of the massively popular BBC series Tribe, and he became famous for his ability to slot himself into pretty much any situation with tribal people, everywhere from Indonesia to Ethiopia and Siberia to New Guinea. Last year, he made a film called Tawai, A Voice from the Forest, in which he visited a nomadic tribe from Sarawak in Borneo called the Penan. As one of the few remaining groups who live in a way that most humans left behind thousands of years ago, Bruce felt that the Penan's unique understanding of the world is something all of us should consider when looking at our own lives. Last time I was here, we were moving from one camp to the next. And I said, oh, where are we going? He said, oh, we're going over there because there's a tree fruiting. And I said, oh, great. Do you, know, do you know that the tree is going to fruit? They said, oh, the bird's flying. And yeah, that's what we know. I said, oh, great. But do you, can you anticipate that the first bird's going to fly at this time? Do you, you know, they go, why would we want to anticipate it? <laughs> it's a ridiculous question. When the bird flies, we go. And it really got me thinking about them and their sense of time. I asked Bruce to come in today to talk about happiness. I'm always fascinated by people who don't take the easy option he went into the Marines and he was very successful. He ended up running a whole department in the Marines. And then a lot of people would have been very happy with the career he carved out for himself at the BBC, but he felt there was a lot more to be shared. And so he decided not to go and do that anymore. And that takes a really brave guy. And he's ended up making this beautiful film. They're terrified of letting go of their forest because that's the only security they really trust. And so every day that the forest is degraded, through the loggers coming through, the pipeline going through, is, is another chink out of their future for their children and their children's children. One of the reasons I want to talk to Bruce is he's a guy who, who's literally gone and lived in every corner of the globe with these tribes, and he questions every day why we're living the way we're living. These guys are intrinsically linked with the world around them. They understand it. What you do here affects your future. So I thought he was the perfect person to talk to about happiness. So I opened the newspaper today and there was yet another report, another study had been done saying we have epidemic levels of mental health issues. And, you know, one in four people in the last 12 months in the UK of a working age just felt so stressed. They didn't feel they could carry on and they didn't know how to deal with it. And it's almost the kind of question of our time, like what's going on? You know, we seemingly have it better than our forefathers and, and our ancestors and all the rest of it. And yet... Nobody's that happy. Happiness is a weird one, isn't it? It's like the difference between, for me, happiness and contentment is quite an interesting place to sort of meditate. It's like happiness, I feel, is a bit more transient. It's like a moment of joy. And so, yeah, in this moment, I'm really happy. But sustaining that over a period of time kind of, for me, moves more into a space of contentment. And so to ask if I'm content makes me have to think a little bit more, you know. 
Do you think we put too much importance on happiness and in fact what we need to do is reframe and, and think about it more in terms of contentment because happiness is without question, it, you know, it kind of changes with the wind really. Yeah, I think the, the work of Viktor Frankl, you, you know, he was the uh, psychiatrist in um, Auschwitz, I really resonated with his findings. You can't pursue happiness even though it's in the American Declaration of Independence, the you know, pursuit of happiness. It's like you can't actually really pursue happiness. It's something that can only ensue from an experience so you pursue something else and then happiness hopefully it's a byproduct and that's a nicer way of looking at life and i think that the other thing that he pointed out i find really interesting is when we are just pursuing happiness our own personal happiness then when things aren't going great you feel shit because that's the thing you're pursuing whereas if you're pursuing something beyond yourself which i see a lot with tribal people it's not just about themselves it's about a bigger picture a longevity, perhaps the future of your environment or something, when that's what you're pursuing, then it doesn't matter how shit things get, you can still find your happiness because you're pursuing something else. And I think that's something that I see a lot in our societies. We're very caught up in our own stuff. And then when it doesn't work, we're like, oh my God, their life's shit because we've forgotten that actually you can find a great deal more joy and contentment when it's not just about you. We know that serving somebody else outside of ourselves always makes us feel better. You know, we know actually it's much nicer to give than receive. Like it's always funner to give out cool presents than get them. And yet with all of that in mind, you know, you go and you do a good deed for your neighbor or, or a stranger in the street. And it really gives you this feeling of intense, you know, kind of deep joy and satisfaction and kind of like, wow, I kind of recognize maybe like for a minute you kind of remember why you're here or you feel why you're here. And then tomorrow I'm not happy again because, you know, I'm not quite where I wanted to be in my career or my relationship isn't where I think it should be or, you know, I'm unhappy about the way my boss or this or that or the other. Like, Yeah, I think also that's a symptom of how atomized we've become. You know, I see again with the tribal people, they're able to have that contentment and that uh, the, those moments of happiness because they're pursuing this thing beyond themselves, but they're doing it as a collective. And so when you come together with this other experience of trying to find something greater than yourselves, then you can find all sorts of joy in that. And I think that we, you know, the stories we tell ourselves as a society are about us as individuals. And that's the other aspect I think is, it kind of needs to be brought back into the equation. Is like it's much easier to find that happiness and pursue that thing that's beyond yourself when you're doing it with other people. And we have a group thing that we're all aiming for, you know. And you see it, and it's, it's, a, it's a, perhaps a terrible example, but things like, wartime you know we'd like forget all of our petty fights and we come together as a group and we face the common enemy and obviously i'm not inviting that state of mind at the moment but there are things that we could come together whether it's climate change or, or whatever forget our petty individual strife and troubles come together with these extraordinary things that we have to deal with uh, you had a massive hit show you're a household name you're making lots of money you're living the life were you happy when you were doing that you know what? I was. I was very heavily stimulated. I was incredible. I mean, I really did pinch myself on very many occasions, almost a daily basis going, oh my God, how did I get this lucky? I mean, this is extraordinary. Uh, 10 years in Ibiza, living a very beautiful life with wonderful people, wonderful friends, having a high life. And then, then the rest of the time zipping off to the Arctic or the Amazon or the desert or wherever it was, meeting extraordinary people. It, it was a pretty special existence. But uh suddenly the champagne lost its fears because I woke up to what the cost of my lifestyle was. 
And then I had to look at it differently. You know, everything that I was doing was having an impact. And that was not only just having an impact abstractly in the world, but also on people that I'd gone and met and lived with. And I could see a direct correlation between me filling my car with petrol or me buying sugar or me buying whatever it was, hardwoods or palm oil, for God's sake. And so suddenly I became less content and happy because I was aware. And that's what basically ended up bringing me back to the UK. But those choices initially seem like a massive loss. I can't do these things that I used to do that brought me great happiness. But just with a, with a not huge shift of the mind to find your meaning in something else, then that all disappears. And the tribes were the ones who taught me that. So tell me a little bit about your background then. I went to boarding school and I joined the Marines as an officer, so pretty institutional. You spent about five or six years in the Marines. Looking back now, do you rate that guy? Yeah, he was a sweetheart and he meant well, but my God, he was riddled with problems and was probably a bit of a menace to society, even though he was at the heart of society, you know. He was like very institutionalised chap but a bit wayward and a bit, bit lost. And then when you stopped being a Marine, you became an expedition leader, That's right? That's right. Yeah, amazing. I was working with turtles and orangutan and tigers and, and rhino off in Borneo and Sumatra and Sulawesi. So an amazing job. Were there chinks in, in old Bruce then at that point when you started? No, work? because I was still leading. So no, I, no one was taking me down in a way. I was still that guy, but just like in a civilian role, you know, like most of my friends from the Marines, they all leave and go to the city or, or whatever can they can stay carry on being that same sort of character and in a way I think I was and I guess the softening came from girlfriends and mushrooms my first ever experience of anything like that totally knocked me sideways and made me realize oh my god I am not all the, that I thought I was that was a big moment for me and then basically going on that journey of starting of self-reflection and realizing god I used to think that I was the answer to everything and the Marines are very good at teaching you that, you know. They you, have you, to teach you that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you are you basically come out absolutely believing you are God's gift to everything and can do anything. And that's a beautiful, empowering experience to have, but not a very real one in civilian life. And it's like, who is that dick? And uh, that was me. Um, and so, you know, luckily I had girlfriends who sort of like pillow talk questioning, Bruce, why you stood to attention in front of the telly with the national anthems on kind of thing. It's really? like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Maybe even sitting in bed. Right, okay. Wow. <laughs> and so then how does Tribe come about? So I did all that stuff for those expeditions, which was great. Then I went into the film industry for a few years, but realized I didn't really vibe in that world so much. But then the millennium came up and I decided to mix my understanding of film and then also expeditions. And I went off to climb a mountain in New Guinea and took a camera and a friend. And we made a film and that won awards around the world. And that was basically the beginning. Then I did a couple of series for Children's BBC taking kids to the jungle and the desert. And they did well, won BAFTAs and things. And then I got picked up for Tribe. So I'd already been kind of in the world for a little bit, but Tribe was obviously the big first big thing. And that was like nine o'clock, BBC Two, prime time. And all of a sudden you're going and living with all these amazing tribes around the world. And across the board, you have an amazing way of finding the common ground with people. Like all of them loved you. I totally loved them. Uh, it was hard. I can't deny it was hard, but what an extraordinary privileged experience, you know. And like, I, people say to me how so often it's like, oh my God, they all love this. Like, to me, it was, yeah, anyone could do that. You just go and hang out and be with a group of people and pay interest in who they are and what they're up to. It's just like being a good guest. 
but the greatest thing that happened to me was the fact that I had had this softening beforehand because I'd already come out of the Marines so self-assured and so confident. And then having that kind of almost turned upside down on its head, that realization that actually the things that you think you are and the things that you think you know might not be actually as they are. That enabled me to then enter this new realm when I was going to be like talking to the nation. It's like, stop, don't be so self-assured, Bruce. And I now see that every one of those tribes that I went to visit, each of them, because I was listening rather than on transmit, I learned huge amounts from each. So were there, were there any moments early on then when you were going around meeting the tribes where there was a real, a kind of a, a, a marked gear change? The first tribe I ever went to live with were called the Babongo. I spent a few weeks with them. We didn't quite know what the show was going to be about, and they invited me to do this sort of initiation, which is the taking of a very strong plant that they do once in a lifetime as a heavy dose. The director was like, yeah, well, you don't have to, you know. And I was like, no, let, let's do this thing. And, and that was pretty big. I was the only guy doing it in the whole village who spent three days preparing. I'm literally on people's shoulders, I'm on the crooks of people's feet, I'm being carried, I'm being taken down to the river, washed. It's a different type of ceremony with a different meaning every hour for those three days, day and night, with people fire flaming around me and people sprinkling water on me and you know, you name it. It was like the the roller coaster ride of all time, with me going into my past and into these past experiences as well as having the sort of dragons all around me in the in the tribal group. The net result for me was the, the most extraordinary healing journey, absolute life changing experience. And so over time, you're putting yourself through all these different life altering experiences. You're meeting people who are living vastly different lives to your own, you know, what do you start to realize? What was interesting, if I look back at it now, obviously every time I went away, I had an extraordinary new insight and then another extraordinary new insight. There was so fast and so many that it was actually quite discombobulating and I, I found it very hard to assimilate. And so I took two years out after making that series tribe and then going down the Amazon, then I took two years out. But what happened during that time was, of course, I was being celebrated. I was meeting loads of people. I was dinner parties and waxing lyrical about my experiences of tribal people and society and indigenous life and human nature is obviously a big one everyone's interested in. I came to the conclusion that even though they're more connected to nature, they're more in society, they're more communal living and all the rest of it, I lost a lot of my romance and I could see that actually all societies are pretty much the same. And so that was my general sort of finding ultimately until I met the Panan, which is the last group that I lived with. And they made me question all of that. And I had to then step away and go, oh, shit, I, I actually have no idea. There's something completely different going on here. And not only that, but this was the only group that I met that represented our true ancestry of like 95% of the time on the planet. Ultimately, the biggest thing was that they were the only group that didn't have competition and hierarchy. And the way that they were with each other was so, so different. It was really like they were operating from a different OS, you know. They had a very different way of being. Here we are again. This is, this is village life. This is how I remember it from before. Everyone in their little homestead. No walls, nothing to hide. You can just see every family completely exposed and all their ups and downs. Everything shared emotionally as well as physically. And this is the community. Every other group had shamans or leaders, and the Panan were anarchists, and yet the most peaceful people on the planet. 
That's the weird thing, you know. We've lost that understanding of what true anarchy is. That word in our language doesn't have anything positive about it at all. And yet, all it means is without leader. And here was a group of people without leaders, without shaman, who were the most peaceful people on the planet. And I remember talking to the anthropologist who said that, and I was like, you can't say that. He goes, no, Bruce, by every means by which we measure this, anthropologists have been living with these people for decades now, and they are the most peaceful people. They seem to have less inner turmoil somehow. You see it in how they are with each other, you see it in the peacefulness of their demeanor. It's all shared within the community, and a problem shared is a problem halved, and, and in this community it's halved and halved and halved again, and it really does feel like a tranquil place. How long ago do you think the norm was the, the way the Penang are living? I reckon that basically when we were in the tropical belt, before the what they call the Neolithic revolutions, so which is like anything up to like 12,000 years ago. I mean, there were estimates that put it into the 30s and 40s. And it depends what type of domestication you're talking about and all the rest of it. But domestication for food, probably 12,000 around that. And then as we moved out of the tropical belt into the sort of more areas where you need to store food for either the drought or the winter, then we started hoarding and then who gets to share the food and all the rest of it. So that's probably where, not through sort of any malicious intent, but probably over time power from that person who gets to share is the power corrupts. And we've been living with that corrupted power ever since. These people knew that allowing anyone to hoard too much or to get ahead of themselves or to become the big I am or any of it, they had tools within their society that basically kept that at bay because they had their own narrative of that being the better way, probably going back all the way to the first moments of Homo sapien kind 200,000 years ago when the women came together and basically outcast the alpha male. Is that what used to happen? This is a theory that has been put up by some of the anthropologists that I've, I've spent time with, and it makes a lot of sense. I went to visit this group in Africa called the Benjeli with these wonderful anthropologists, Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, and there's a dance and song that they have. The Benjeli being like the San Bushmen, they're sort of, they live in the Congo, they're like the oldest, oldest of societies. And they have a dance and a song that relates to the moment when they basically throw out the alpha male. It needs a bit of interpretation, but once you get that idea in your head, it makes so much sense when you see it, when you ask them about it and how they describe it. And there it is. It's like the women basically saying no and inviting in the other men to be an equal society, provided you come in and leave at the door your competitive, aggressive tendencies. And here we are going to work together to make this work. It's like, shit, it has been possible in the past. There was a moment when we went from competitive hierarchy into egalitarianism. You look at all of the other attempts at revolution since, they've always replaced like with like. And here was a time when it worked. And I'm like, this bit of story isn't in the world. What our real sort of ancestral heritage is. I mean, I don't know if humankind want to bring this back, but we definitely need to have that story back. You know, it was interesting. I made a documentary last year, which meant I had to travel around Britain. And 
it didn't matter where we were in the country, what kind of background the person came from, whether they were kind of middle class or very working class or poor or whatever, or had loads of money. Everybody felt like they were struggling. And nobody was over 23 or four years old and really, really felt like they were struggling. And I just thought, wow, that's crazy. For me, when I left school, I was so excited about the world and the possibilities and where I was going to go and what I was going to do and what I was going to achieve. And at no point did I feel stressed at all about it. You know, one of the guys that we interviewed in the making of the film was a guy called Richard Wilkinson, who does a beautiful work on inequality. And one of the things that he points out is that we always see the stress in society, people are stressed because they're poor. But he points out that that's actually not a correlation at all. If you look at all nations across the world and how that operates, it's not because you're poor necessarily, it's because you feel you're poor. And it is about how we relate ourselves to other members of society. And so when you've been going around talking to people about how the, the world that they're in and how their prospects are and all the rest of it, so often these are psychological aspects of like how we see ourselves and relate to ourselves in comparison to others. And when we have a society that's so disparate now, we're so spread out on this huge ladder and huge pyramid of, of success and non-success. And it's like, it's very, it's, it's understandable that we all, you know, look at that with impossibility and go, oh my God, you know. So we're swimming in a paradigm of inequality that goes right to the heart from the very first moment of meeting anyone. We're, we're all in that space. And that's what's so beautiful about living with some of these tribal people is they don't allow that shit in. You know, I was with one, this group in Africa, the Bengelian, and they were pointed out a guy in the corner, like, you see that dude over there? You know, he's, he, we all know he's kind of one of the best hunters, if not the best hunter. But a couple of years ago, he started showing off that he was the best hunter and we just stopped going hunting with him. And the women refused to cook his food because we just don't want that shit here because they know what it leads to. And what's really interesting is like, you look at that group and you think, God, because they've all been keeping a lid on it for so long, I wonder if they know what it leads to, but they haven't seen that. They haven't seen what we've got. So what is it? It's the story. They know what happens, not because of they've seen it, but because it's in the narrative of the culture that we don't want it. So they all work at it together. It's, it's, it's a group thing. So in a world then where we're becoming more and more atomized and distracted, how do you stay grounded? Well, you know, interestingly, when I first started out doing all this tribal stuff, I wasn't grounded. I was living this hectic lifestyle back in Ibiza, having a very enjoyable, celebrated, fun lifestyle that wasn't really related to my tribal experiences at all. But I kind of was still thinking that I've got the best life in the world. It was funny, I got sent off to cross Greenland as, as a Captain Scott and some TV show to sort of emulate this crossing of the Arctic. And I basically went cold turkey on stimulation. I hadn't realised it, but I had become incredibly addicted to this very high-octane, stimulated life that I was living. You know, the jungle, the desert, the Arctic, and then back in Ibiza, all this... And then suddenly I was in this sort of flat, white expanse with no foliage, no trees, no birds, no colours, nothing, just white as far as the eye could see in every direction, every day for months. It was torture. And everyone else in that trip were having a great time and I was just, like, pulling my hair out, going, oh, my God, this is fucking horrible, what's going... You know, I was, like, really inside. Couldn't stop the 
madness of my mind running away and like just thinking that my life was like trickling through my fingers and what was I doing? This was like nothing. It was a really weird experience. And it was after that that basically I realised that I didn't want to ever have that experience again. And that's why I took two years out after going down the Amazon to be in my home in Ibiza to think I've got to deal with this stimulation addiction that I've got. And so I spent the winters there on my own with my dog and just calmed down slowly. And it was during that time that I came across meditation, actually. And that became the tool that allowed me to deal with that. As, as you'll see in the film, became a central part of my understanding of what it is that the Panam have. They are meditating every day. By hunting and gathering, where I've learned to forage recently, by going out and looking at the plants around you, I have a very different way of walking than previously when I would just go for walks whistling and looking at the horizon and just like, now I have to be attentive to what's going on around me. And me, I'm just kind of trying my hardest to do the same. But mostly I'm drifting off in my mind what's happening this afternoon. When you're hunting, you have to be fully focused in the present moment to all of your senses in your body, listening and feeling and experiencing so that you'll get the monkey, otherwise it gets away. And so we used to exercise that part of ourselves on a daily basis. And when you're exercising that part of yourselves, as anyone who's learned to meditate understands, it's like, Basically, you're feeling, you're more in your body and your senses in your heart and you have a different type of experience of connection to that which is around you. And the difference between those two ways of being was manifold for me. One was like this sort of like egoic craziness and another one was much more centered and present and all these sort of like new age words that you hear but they were really that was very real for me and a sense of empathy a sense of feeling connected to people and place and that was another massive thing on contentment and happiness and interestingly I was at the Houses of Parliament last year and went to a a, a joint party committee meeting on mindfulness And extraordinary what I was hearing from the prison service, from the National Health Service, from the education service, those sectors of society, those groups that were experimenting with mindfulness were finding it curing all sorts of things that they had no idea it was going to cure. It had no idea. And I think that this is central to a huge part of why it is that we're unhappy, discontent and running rampant in our heads. And I think that also explains why the Penan are living the way they do in this egalitarian way because they also feel and experience the world differently to how we do today. So there's a lot of other people out there who are they're either trying to climb the ladder or they're wondering whether they should bother climbing the ladder at all, given that you've been around the world and had the, the wonderful uh, experience of, of meeting you know, people who live in a way that, you know, that, that is consistent with actual seeming harmony and, and collaboration and cooperation, and they're happy. Like, what's your advice to them? Oh, 
This is probably the hardest question of all. We're living in a society where it's very, very, very hard to step away and go, I'm not going to be affected by that. I'm going to run my own space and do my own thing and 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 think we can be an island in that. I, I think that we are swimming in a, in a paradigm that that way of being is is everything. It's definitely would be beyond me on my own to be able to step aside and go, well, I'm just going to f- flow with a different school of fish in a different direction. It's not a simple answer. But I think that things like, you know, we all feel so isolated and we feel so disempowered and, and there's this hope, sense of hopelessness. We all are aware of what's going on in the world. And yet we're like, what can one person do? I just carry on buying palm oil because what's one person? So I do think that coming together, finding people with like minds, making this our conversations, just bringing it into our daily thought process and finding others with similar thought process and coming together is the first step of actually putting your meaning into something else collectively. And I think that that leads to all sorts. How many friends do we both have who are so energized because they're on that train of doing something that's worthwhile in the world. It's just, you just sing, you come alive, you shine in your eyes. It's like we, we both have friends who are doing that and they stick out in the crowd. It's like, wow, you know, what are you going to go and be the person who's working the advertising agency or are you going to step out of that and use all of that creative wisdom and creativity that you have and do something for the benefit of like all of us, even if it means making less and, and not having those crazy lunches on a Friday afternoon. You know, it's like you trade that shit in for something worthwhile for us all and you will find all sorts that come as a benefit of that. You, there's all sorts of ways you can sort of like encapsulate that in, in your sort of worldview. But in my experience, all of those people, all of them are so much happier now because they're... It's not just about them anymore. So then what's next for you? What are you looking forward to? I plan to become a, a community member in a society that has a very different understanding of ownership, where we all completely joint own the space and um, live much more in close with nature. And all that. so like, that's the next thing I'm going to get involved in. And so even if I buy the space, I just hand it over to the gang straight away because that's what I believe is going to make us all more happy. Me holding on to it, five years down the road when I'm having a problem with someone, I've got the power and I'll use the power. But if I don't have the power, I have to deal with people in a different way. And I actually think that even though that's terrifying, it will it'll be to my benefit in the long run. Brucey, I'm so happy that you're in all of our lives. I wish you the best of luck with the new adventure and I can't wait to sit here one day and talk about it. Come meet us, come meet us, I'm come hang out. Yeah, come hang out. For sure, mate, for sure. This episode of Stories by Sower House was brought to you by Radio Wolfgang and Sower House. It featured me, George Lamb, talking to Bruce Parrott. If you want to find out more about the film, visit tawai.earth, T-A-W-A-I.earth.